Hi, welcome to the Penis Project podcast. This is the place to come to find out everything you've always wanted to know about men's health but were too embarrassed to ask. Join physiotherapist Dr. Joe Milios and sexologist nurse practitioner Melissa Hadley Barrett as they talk to real men and the experts about men's private parts. Have a burning question you really want to know the answer to? Please subscribe to our website at thepenisproject.org and just ask us. The length, while the greater the strength, the more time I've got for you. There's too much talking, texting, tweeting, posting. Too much noise altogether. In silence is strength and peace and space. Imagine silence forever. The Penis Project podcast is proudly supported and sponsored by PROST, Exercise for Prostate Cancer, and the RS Health Penile Rehabilitation Program. PROST is a not-for-profit charity set up by myself in 2012 that aims to help men exercise during their experience with prostate cancer. If you want to know anything more about PROST, including our online service and USB product now available, please just go to prost.com.au. Hi, I'm Melissa Hadley-Barrett and I designed the Penile Rehabilitation Program to help men recover from prostate cancer. It's an online program built on decades worth of knowledge and experience and practice. It's the only one of its kind in the world and it actually works. So if you've been diagnosed with prostate cancer and want to get your penis working again as quickly as possible, and why wouldn't you, then visit penilerehabilitationprogram.com and you'll be off and running. And it only takes about 15 minutes a day. All the best with your recovery, which I promise will never be as bad as you think. November 11, 11am, 60 seconds, kids watch on the wall. Good afternoon and good morning, wherever you may be. I'd like to welcome everybody from around Australia, New Zealand and parts of Asia. My name's Gary Morrison and I'm part of the management group for the Shine a Light support group here in Sydney, Australia. Before I start, I'd like to do a brief welcome to country. In recognising Aboriginal and Torres Strait Islander people's spiritual and cultural connection to country and in continuing our commitment to reconciliation, I would like to commence the meeting by acknowledging the First Peoples and the traditional owners and custodians of the country, wherever we may be. We respectfully acknowledge our elders past and present and remember that they have passed on their wisdom to us in various ways. Let us hold this in trust as we work and serve our communities. Thank you. I'd like to welcome everyone to our third in our series of five webinars. Today, we're going to be looking at exercise, nutrition, and sexual intimacy. I'd like to extend a warm welcome to our speakers, uh, Professor Rob Newton, uh, Kendall Gow, and Melissa. I'm sorry, Melissa, I've just <laughs> got lost your surname there. But anyway, welcome, right. to, welcome to you all. Um, my, my, my journey uh, when I first was diagnosed with prostate cancer going back some 13 years ago. Um, the issues of uh, exercise and also nutrition were hardly spoken about uh, when, when we were actually exploring just what I needed to do in changing my lifestyle and practice. We've come a long way in 13 years and it really culminates a bit today in the, in the session that we're going to be hearing uh, from our speakers. Um, I'm going to be co-chairing with Dr. Kelly Spencer. 
I'll be handing over to Kelly shortly. Um, I'd like to firstly, though, uh, thank our supporters in Boston Scientific and Prostate Cancer Foundation of Australia uh, in enabling us to bring this series to you. To all those support group leaders uh, that are present, uh, all of these sessions are recorded. They go up on our YouTube channel. Um, you're more than welcome to uh, access those and use those within your support groups meetings, and uh, we encourage you to do so. Um, I've had a lot of feedback from um, throughout Asia and parts of New Zealand uh, requesting permission to use the, uh, the, the webinars. They're up on the channel for you to use freely as you wish. This particular webinar, as all our webinars are, are designed to be able to enable all of those attending to ask as many questions as they wish. We've got a two hour session and we will get through all of your questions. That's one thing we do promise. So without any further ado, welcome again, and I'll pass over to Dr. Kelly Spencer to chair the meeting. Cheers. Thanks, Gary. Um, and welcome back, everyone. Um, Nicholas, if you can just put my camera on for me, thanks. Um, uh, thanks for joining us again on this uh, Saturday afternoon or morning, depending on where you are. Um, it's really rainy and miserable here in Sydney, so it's a perfect day to be rugged up indoors and, and taking part in a webinar and learning and educating ourselves. So um, thanks again, and uh, thanks, Gary, for the intros. I'm now going to introduce the speakers. Um, and just before that, uh, I just wanted to mention, like Gary said again, please type in the Q&A at the bottom any questions you have related to any of the topics or any of the speakers, and uh, where appropriate and when relevant, I will uh, direct the questions to the speakers. Um, so don't be shy, this is your time really to ask um, as many questions as you want about these topics, and you can ask anonymously as well, which is also quite nice. Um, so our sort of theme starting off with sexual intimacy is, is, is all about related to, you know, last time we spoke about medical treatment, surgical treatment, but now we're looking at the psychological aspects. We're also looking at sort of physical intimacy and, and ways of reinventing yourself and, um, you know, trying different techniques that, that can be used that may not include, you know, penetrative sex or uh, ejaculation specifically. Um, so to tell us about that, we've got Melissa Hadley-Barrett, who's the director and co-founder of the Restorative Sexual Health Clinic. Um, and this clinic is based in Perth, uh, and, with, and they've got a whole lot of country clinics in, in Western Australia. Um, and it, Melissa has been a nurse practitioner for over 20 years now, and is passionate about assisting people with sexual function and intimate relationships. Her dual qualification as a sexologist and a nurse practitioner enables her to diagnose and to treat physical issues and also assist with, the com with complex psychological issues. She's also the co-founder of the Penis Project podcast, very interesting, which shares real life stories and lived experiences with men and their loved ones. She's a keen researcher and has been invited to publish and review local and international publications, including the True Nth International Guidelines for Sexual Health Care and Prostate Cancer, and locally the Health Professional's Guide to Delivering the Psychological Care for Men with Prostate Cancer. Um, and that was by Professor Suzanne Chambers, who was a previous guest speaker um, in our, in one, for one of our webinars. Um, so that's Melissa. And then we're going to move on to talking a bit about um, 
So the theme is obviously wellness, uh, health and well-being. So we want to talk a little bit about diet and nutrition. So uh, we've got Kendall Gao, who's a nurse practitioner, nutritionist and diabetic educator. And she works at the Restorative Sexual Health Clinic with Melissa, uh, based in Perth. She's passionate about assisting men with prostate cancer recovery and urological sexual dysfunction, diabetes and weight management. Uh, she enjoys providing community education to both community members and health professionals around sexual function, diabetes and weight management. Um, so, you know, our focus will be on, on, on sort of weight management um, because some of the treatments that are used in prostate cancer can certainly cause one to put on weight or develop metabolic syndrome. Of, if you're going for surgery, of course, weight management is important because it improves the outcomes after surgery for, for many different reasons. Um, so that will sort of be the focus uh, in, 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 from a nutrition point of view. Um, and then we'll finish off our discussions for, with Professor Robert Newton, who's, the professor of, who's a professor of exercise medicine at the Edith Cowan University, also in Western uh, Australia. Um, he was previously the head of department at the university and is now the deputy director of the Exercise Medicine Research Institute. In 2020, he was appointed as a vice chancellor professorial research fellow at the same institute. He received a Career Achievement Award from the Cancer Council of Western Australia in 2019 and was named the Western Australia Premier Scientist of the Year. In 2021, he was awarded by the University of Queensland a higher doctorate for his research into exercise oncology, publishing over 900 scientific papers, 17 book chapters, well-referenced and uh, a real uh, expert acknowledged locally and globally. We're very fortunate to have Professor Newton. He'll be talking a bit about his personal research interest in um, exercise medicine as a neoadjuvant, adjuvant and rehabilitative cancer therapy to reduce the side effects and enhance the effectiveness of surgery, chemotherapy and radiation therapy as well. So that's a mouthful, um, but we really are in good hands once again um, with these experts. Um, so please, let's pick their brains, throw us <laughs> some questions, um, and I'm going to stop talking and hand over to Melissa. Over to you. Hello, everybody. Thank you very much for coming. Now, if I'm stopping to drink water or sound croaky, I apologise. I was just bragging the other night that I'd escaped COVID and I've woken up this morning and tested positive. So, um, yeah, so I'm just going to share my screen with you and then I'll start chatting. And please ask as many questions as you want in the chat. So, here we go. Um, first up, I thought I would just tell you about how I got into this role because I think it's really um, pertinent to this chat today. And I'm just going to start my timer so that I don't chat to you all for too long. It's very raining here, so I hope you can hear me over that. Uh, so, yes, basically, I worked in remote areas for many years and then I went into research. And then when I was working in general practice as a nurse practitioner about 10 years ago now, a lady came in to see me um, for a pap smear and she happened to be a nurse that I'd worked with many years before when she was in her 40s and I was um, quite young at like 22 year old nurse working in emergency department and she used to come to work all the time and tell me on night shift about her amazing sex life which kind of shocked me because at 22 you don't think that um, people in their 40s are having sex. Anyway years later she came in for a pap smear 
And when I went to do it, things were a bit difficult down there. And I asked her about it and she burst into tears and said that her husband had had prostate cancer treatment two years previously and their relationship had completely fallen over. They, he wouldn't hold her hand anymore. He didn't cuddle her and he was really depressed. And like, this was so sad. So I said to her, you know, I'll go away and find out how I can help, which I did. And I got them both back in. And we had a very long chat about his depression and how that was related to his function and how he felt like he wasn't a man anymore. And just opening up that conversation with them made such a big difference. And then we also went on to find some treatments and some things that would actually help with the physical problem. But the main part of that was just about reconnecting them with their relationship. And then as a few months later, um, I got a lovely letter from them and telling me how they felt like they'd fallen in love again and how wonderful it was that they'd reconnected and they thought they'd lost that part of their life. So that kind of spurred me on to find out more, which is the reason that I do what I do now. And I think it just highlights how important it is that people don't just worry about just getting rid of cancer, but they also think about their intimate relationships and their connections with their partner. So do people care about sexuality? I've, I find that when people come into my clinic, they'll often say to me when I see them pre-treatment that, oh, we don't really care about that. Um, all we care about is getting rid of the cancer. But that changes. You know, they're very effective now. The treatments are very effective at getting rid of prostate cancer. But the problem is that, um, you know, people are obsessed with that at the beginning and then they go on and you know, years down the track, six months down the track, they realise that they've lost this huge part of their life, which is their intimate relationship, and they're not sure how to re-navigate that. So they've actually done quite a lot of research on this. And one study shows that 80% of participants with cancer have an intense interest to discuss sexual concerns. However, most of them don't actually raise this with their health professional. And there's a number of reasons for that. One is because they feel guilty. They feel like they've survived cancer. So why should they then go on to discuss, you know, to, they, they want too much if they also want to have their intimate relationships functioning as well and that they should just be happy. And the other reason is because they just feel embarrassed to ask their health professional about it. And I actually speak to health professionals a lot about raising that subject because I think if they just raise the subject, often the patients will be more inclined to talk. About it. So it is important. So sex and intimacy are important for our quality of life, our relationships, our mental health and our physical health. And it's really important, you know, to keep the blood flowing and have everything working in your body. It really is the old adage of if you don't use it, you'll lose it. So I'm not going to tell you today that sex after prostate cancer treatment is going to be the same as it was before, but it still can be good. You just need to think about it in a different way. I also think it's really important to know that 30 to 50% of the general population actually will have sexual dysfunction at some stage in their lifestyle. And people with depression, that percentage is even higher. And so I think often when I see people or couples with um, prostate cancer or even single people in particular, they'll be like, I'm never going to be able to be in a relationship again because I have this problem. But I think it's really important to understand that any, you know, a lot of people over the age of 50 in particular will have a sexual dysfunction. So you're not alone just because you've had cancer treatment. And that, you know, people in that age group that are dating and having relationships are all having to navigate this problem. 
So don't feel like if everything works perfectly before your treatment and now it doesn't, that, that you're an oddity because you're just a very normal person in the world. So sexual dysfunction is multifactorial, you know, so your psychological and your interpersonal factors such as your relationships and if you're happy at work or happy at home are really important. Obviously disease and the treatment of disease affects your physical function and also because we're getting so good at treating these things now, there's a decline in people actually dying from the disease, but there is an increase in the long-term side effects after. So we need to find workarounds. Not everything is fixable, but we can always find a workaround. And that's what I want to talk to you about. So first up, I think it's important to know that intimacy is not the dance of two good looking bodies. And I really like um, Coco Chanel's um, comment here. She says, we can be gorgeous at 30, charming at 40 and irresistible at any age. Bodies that are older, silver haired, wrinkly chubby, thin and scared are still attractive. And I always say to people when I'm talking to them that just remember candlelight's your best friend. So everyone as they age, regardless of what their treatment or their function is, probably need to um, have, a, have a nice candle buyer they buy their candles from. So intimacy is about connecting yourself with another person and experiencing pleasure. Um, it's a way to express love, lust, and and just to feel, it's you feel different about the person that you're in an intimate relationship with, a romantic relationship, than anyone else in your life. So it's important that we foster these and don't go, I've just had cancer treatment, so I just have to say goodbye to that. So the most consistent predictors of sexual health in cancer survivors are their emotional well-being of them and the partner. And I think often in partnered relationships in prostate cancer, us as health professionals really concentrate on the patient and we forget that the partner is going through this too. Their life has been changed as well. And that's really important. Um, and it also is important like for us to look at whether or not the partner has any sexual function or dysfunction. So as a partner, what can you do to help? I think talking and opening things up, opening up the conversation both ways is really important from the person who is suffering from the illness and also the partner of it. You need to tell them what makes them feel special. And I was speaking recently to a prostate cancer nurse in New Zealand, and she told me something that she does with prostate cancer patients. She's, and I thought this was lovely. She said that often men feel like they've, they're not masculine anymore. And so they're not there for their partner in that masculine role that they felt were, they were before. And so she always asks them if they're partnered to get their partner to write down the things that make them feel masculine to them. And I think this is important not to think about gender here, but we all have, whatever our gender, we have a masculine and a feminine side to our personality. And some, um, some of us are more masculine regardless of our gender and some are more feminine. But if you're the personality in your relationship that is the more masculine person, that's how you identify and it's important to you. So as a partner of one of these people, Often it's not about whether or not they have sexual functioning organs that makes them masculine. It's things like that they cut the wood or they look after you or they're intelligent or the type of music they listen to or whatever it is. So I think it's really important for partners to, to tell your partner that because you don't realise often that people are worrying about 
that they're thinking, oh, because I'm sexually not working and my function has changed, I don't, I don't seem like the same person anymore to my partner. So I think it's really valuable if as a partner you can, can express that what makes your partner special and, in, and masculine to you. I think from the person who suffers the illness and also the partner, it's important to be vulnerable and tell them how you feel. Often we see in our clinic, the partners just saying to the, to the person who suffered prostate cancer, oh, I don't mind if we're never intimate again or if we never have sex again, I'm just glad you're alive. And I know that that's said in a really kind way, but what the other person hears is, I don't care if we're ever intimate again. And so I think it's important to be really clear in your messaging and say, I would love to help you and support you so that we can be physically intimate again, but that's not the most important thing and it doesn't have to be the same as it was before. So that brings me to being adventurous. So we're gonna talk more about that. There's lots of, I think we're so focused on erectile function, um, particularly in Western culture. And I think there's so many other things we can do and this can often be a different opportunity to try new things that you haven't tried before. And understand that this is a time of grieving for both of you. You know, you're both grieving and you both can talk about what you've lost. Don't just pretend that things haven't changed because they have. So, you know, be aware that you're both grieving and you've lost something and now you need to find a new way. So other unique problems to these, this illness is that often partners may take on the role of the carer and that's difficult because when you're a carer for somebody, you often don't see them as a sexual being anymore. You're often exhausted as a partner. So the idea of then going and being physically intimate with someone is just too much, more than you can bear. The partner will often feel depressed or anxious because they're worried about what is happening and what the future holds. And the patient may feel emotionally disconnected because they're consumed with their illness and their treatment, particularly if they're on androgen deprivation therapy, makes them feel exhausted and lacklustre. So these things are, we really need to think and talk about them. So changing the script, I think this is important and it doesn't matter whether you've ever had a, a change in your function or not. Anyone who's been with the same partner for a long time, will, it's good for you to change the script to be for your intimacy. So I always say that you wouldn't eat the same flavoured ice cream for 40 years. So you need to change things up. And believe it or not, often these situations where people have gone through treatment and things have changed, I've had so many people tell me that their sexual relationships have improved. And I know that's hard to believe, but it's because you've often done the same thing all the time for many years. And this, because things aren't working the same as they used to, you need to look outside the square and try new things. Many of our patients will try sex toys for the first time ever. You know, it won't be, their sexual intimacy won't be so function, like focused on erections anymore. They'll think about things like sensate touch and using sex toys. There's many amazing sex toys out there now, such as the Pulse Duo that um, helps people have orgasm without having an erection and there's so many couples toys for this now and things can be really shaken up and you can have a lot of fun with this so I haven't got enough time to go into all those things in detail today but on our website which you'll get at the end of the talk there is a lot of blogs and we have one patient in particular and he, his pen name is Testicle and um, he writes blogs for us on things that he's tried and so we have a shop on our website 
and think everything in there has been tried by Testi um, and all the penis owners' toys anyway, and he writes a blog about what's good and what's bad and how he used them. And some of his used for solo fun and some with his partner. So he's a very entertaining writer and I think it's a really good way just to go, let's have a look at things and let's see if we can try something new. So sexual dysfunction isn't always a bad thing. Now, this, um, <laughs> this cartoon is referring to menopause in women. However, men who are going through androgen deprivation therapy feel like this. They feel often they have insomnia, they feel anxious, they get hot flushes, they don't feel very attractive and they just feel a little bit wobbly. So as the patient who's going through this, know that you're not alone and this is normal and there's many treatments for these feelings and, and you do need to take, speak to your health professional about that. You don't just have to grin and bear it. But as the partner of someone going through this, if you're a female partner, please don't say, oh, oh well, now you know what it's like because that's really not helpful. And if you're another male partner, then think about what you're, what, what you're both going through and that this is really different and emotions aren't going to be as stable as they were before and that androgen um, deprivation therapy has an effect on the whole system. So to be aware of that. So... I'm not going to go into how to treat erectile dysfunction today because I know that you all had that last week with Dr. Stricker. But erections are important. They're not just about blood flow, nerves and hormones. So much of, of sexual function is in your mind and we do need to be turned on and feel contented and close and attached in our mind. So that's important. I also think if you're in a same-sex relationship, um, that it's that penile rehab is something that you can do together because as men age, they would also benefit. So you don't just have to have had prostate cancer treatment to have penile rehabilitation. So I think that it's important to think about that. And also I have many men say to me, I wish that my partner would pay more attention to what I was doing for the rehabilitation. They often, I think, partners kind of ignore it because they feel embarrassed and they don't want to draw attention to what's going on and they're not sure how to broach the subject. So if you're a partner of somebody that has had prostate cancer treatment and is doing penile rehabilitation, show interest, ask them what they're doing, ask them why they're doing it, ask them how it works. Um, and also, you know, and, and also if, if you're also a penis owner, then it might be something fun that you could do together because it will certainly won't do you any harm. You don't just have to have had prostate cancer treatment to to use the pump and do the exercises. So it's something you could do together. Um, penile rehabilitation is all about stopping the tissues from deteriorating. Um, and it is that, as I said earlier, that case of if you don't use it, you lose it. So it's the longer time that you're not having your penis functioning is associated with a poorer outcome. So I think it's really important to get onto penile rehabilitation and understand that this is really important for your future function. Um, you can get penile shortening without it and maintenance of your sexual relationship. There's lots of different ways to do it and the combination of them is, is important. Now, I'm not going to go into this today because that's not what we're talking about, but if you'd like more information about that, you can go to our website or prostaterehabilitation.com. So if sexual function is a car, 
And then this really fast, fancy one is the sexual function. But a great road trip is sexual well-being. So I just really want you to take away from today that it's not about whether the bits are working like they used to and everything doesn't have to function perfectly. It's about who you spend the journey with, that you have fun on the journey and that you try new things and that there are new and different ways to do things. And look at this as an adventure of what else is out there that I haven't explored before rather than, oh, my God, nothing's working and feeling sad about it. And I think if you, even if you're a single person, you know, it doesn't matter. You just need to explore new things. Um, and exploring new things, there's a lot of people out there who are adventurous and keen to explore new things. So don't feel as though you can't look for intimacy just because things aren't working perfectly or aren't working like they used to. I know that there will be some health professionals and some um, support leaders in the talk in this group today. So what can you do to help? I think talking to your patients and raising the subject. This really is a subject that men in particular feel really uncomfortable raising with their health professional. So I think it's important that they understand what's happening, that you talk to them about it, tell them that it's safe to have sex during their treatment and involve partners in the conversation wherever possible. We like to have the partner involved in the consult because there's two people there and if you, it's not a one-sided thing. So just treating one person is not helpful. We need to open up the conversation and let partners talk about what they're worried about and what they're feeling. Make sure that we assess patients' overall health and make sure that we refer when we're not able to deal with the problems ourselves. There's so many great people out there, particularly in Australia. We've been doing quite a few talks recently overseas and it seems that, you know, we're really far ahead in this. And so make sure we keep doing that and that we refer to appropriate specialties. And what can the patient do to maximise their chances of recovery? And you're going to hear a lot more about this today, but you can, there's things you're in control of. You can change your diet, exercise, reduce smoking and alcohol. You can practice pleasure. And it's all about the mindset. It's all about thinking my life my, my intimate life is not over because things aren't working like they used to. How can I mix this up? How can I use this to my advantage? Um, manage your stress, improve your relationship, talk to your partner um, and seek help. Remember that you're grieving. This is a grief. You've lost something. So you both can grieve together and or if you're on your own, grieve alone. There's many things I think that people don't know that we talk about um, and that often come up in conversation. And I'd just like to quickly touch on those, that every time a man ejaculates, a little bit of weedy comes out. And then after prostate cancer surgery, often that's all that's there. Um, you know, or sometimes there's, there's obviously either nothing or a little bit of weed. So I think knowing this is a lot less scary that if you have an orgasm and a little bit of urine comes out, that's always been the case. So please try not to stress about that. And there's a lot of things we can do to help that such as teach people how to use a lasso um, and there's a, yeah, there's a, wear a condom. We can, there's always a workaround. Um, Post-prostate operation, the orgasm is dry and that a man can have an orgasm without an erection. I think not a day goes past in my clinic where I don't have someone be completely shocked that that's possible, but it is possible. And we really encourage people to do that because once you realize that, 
you realize that having an erection isn't the be all and end all, that you can experience pleasure and emotional release and connection with another person without worrying about having an erection. And a lot of people tell us that orgasm after prostate removal is more intense. So if you want further information, um, these are three books that I think are excellent. Um, Dr. Susan Chambers, um, her book is brilliant. The Five Love Languages. This book is nothing to do with sex. It's all about relationships and how to connect to your partner. And I think it's really important to understand what your partner's love language is and also your own so you understand what fills up your love tank. So I can't recommend that book highly enough. And this other book here, Intimacy with Impotence, is an excellent book. Um, unfortunately, it's written by a heterosexual couple and I haven't been able to find anything that isn't written by a heterosexual couple in this area, but the issues are still the same. It doesn't matter whether you're heterosexual, bisexual, or you're in a same-sex relationship. Intimacy, all the issues between intimate couples are the same. It, it really doesn't make any difference. So I just wanted to say that one of the things I hear often is um, men tell me they've been to their GP and they've asked about their sexual function, if there's anything they can do to help. And um, they often I get back, oh, my GP told me I was too old to worry about it or I should just be happy that um, I'm, I'm cancer free. Well, you know, don't take that as gospel. There is a lot of help out there. Older people do enjoy sex. I have one, my oldest patient is now 96. I had a brand new patient a few weeks ago who um, came in and he was 90 and he'd been functioning perfectly until a year previously and he still wanted to get his function back. Him and his wife, who was in her late 80s, were really missing it. So older people do have and enjoy sex. So please don't give up. There's always something we can do to help. Um, and also remembering that 50% of 75-year-old men have erectile dysfunction. So 50% don't. So, you know, you've got a pretty good chance. And that sex is good for you and it's good for your relationship. So the take-home message is that patients and their partners want health professionals to raise the subject. And if your health professional doesn't raise it with you, then you need to bring this subject up. Quality of life is really important, not just the eradication of disease. And there's all, different treatments have different sexual results. So if you had radiation or you've had CyberKnife, which is also radiation, but a different type, or surgery or whatever it is that you've had, you will have different sexual results. And so talk to someone about this that can help you with dealing with your particular journey. And always treat a couple as a couple. This is a couple's problem, not an individual's. So um, as Kelly said in the, in the intro, we have a podcast, which is called The Penis Project. Um, I co-host that with a colleague of mine, Dr. Joe Milios, who's a physiotherapist who specialises in men's health. Um, on this, we, have in, we do interview specialists, but more commonly we interview men about their real life stories. I think it's really important to hear what other people are going through. Um, I think the guys that come on here are so brave. They talk about, they will usually give them a false name so no one recognises them and you can't see their face. So it means that they're brutally honest about what they're going through and they're often very funny. So this is available on Apple and Spotify and also on the net. Um, so please, I encourage you to listen. And we're always looking for more people to interview. So if anyone has a story they'd like to add, 
Um, I would love to speak to a same-sex couple. They have a lot of same-sex patients, but um, none of them so far have agreed to be interviewed. So if there's a couple out there or an individual in this situation that would like to be interviewed or anyone, I would love for you to send me an email um, and get you on the Penis Project. So if you'd like more information, um, this is where you can find us. And I'm sure it'll be, you'll get sent an email with our contact details. Um, we have face-to-face -face consults and Zoom consults. And we also have a lot of information on our website. So I encourage you to check it out. Melissa, thank you so much. Um, just so you, so you do do telehealth uh, consults? Yes, definitely. We Quite often I'm doing them on the other side of the world since we started the Penis Project. It's like we have people from everywhere booking in the consults, so definitely. Lovely. Um, so we do have a question that came up. I'll ask you now. Um, this person found they tend to have dry orgasms. Um, and uh, he, he experiences at times a sort of stinging sensation afterwards near the head of his penis. And he just wants to know if this is normal or not. It depends on where they are in the journey of their post-treatment. But quite often, if they've had surgery, um, then as the nerves start to heal and, and get better, they send out these weird little kind of messages and I have a lot of men tell me this exact thing that they get um, a stinging or burning sensation in the glands and some also have like electric shocks going down the shaft so if it's persistent and it's a long time past you're, you're having your initial treatment then yeah there's things we can do to help to ease that but if it's in the first year or two post surgery if that's what you had as a treatment then it's normal and it's actually a really great sign. It means things are starting to wake up and your nerves are, are doing what they're supposed to do and that should go away. That's great. Thanks, Melissa. That definitely answers the question. Um, I had a question for you. Um, well, a few. Some, some of our participants you know, are not partnered um, and I know you've kind of alluded to that, but um, you know, what sort of advice is there for them, you know, where they can't really establish a relationship or have that support, but they do have sexual needs and, you know, they may have one sort of encounters. How do they sort of negotiate that experience, um, you know, as a one, in a one sort of encounter? Yeah, so I think when you're having, it's obviously much more difficult for a single person than it is for someone who's coupled because you don't have someone to share the journey with you. And so I think then actually overcoming the sexual dysfunction or finding a workaround for it is more important. And that might be if you're having a one-off encounter. I have lots of single patients who will use injectables. And I know injectables are a scary idea, but they do work fantastic. And we have, you know, auto injectors now that make it easier and things like that. And I think, you know, that makes it very normal. I mean, if you're very proficient at using that and you're able to use an auto injector and have an, have an erection, then there's no reason why your new partner or your casual partner ever needs to even know what you're going through. It, it can simply be a matter of I'm proficient at this. I'll go to the bathroom. I'll give myself an injection and then I'll start my foreplay. And over the next or 10 or 15 minutes, I'll get an erection. And so I think it's about learning how to do these things on your own not waiting until you're partnered to think about your sexual function don't give up on it because i'm just thinking of one guy in particular that 
I have. And he was like, I really want to meet somebody and be in a relationship, but how can I when it's not working? And I was like, maybe what you need to do is get proficient at dealing with the erection problem so you feel confident enough to start dating again. And then once you're doing that and you know someone well enough, then you can talk to them about your issues. But you don't have to tell everyone everything at the beginning if you just find a good workaround. Yeah. That's good advice. Um, I had another question uh, related to masturbation because um, obviously, I mean, that that's a form of rehabilitation, isn't it? Um, and there's a lot of research into this now, um, obviously stimulating flow. Um, is, is that true? And, and when can it be a bad thing? You know, there's also the idea of watching. I mean, if it's associated with pornography, it can also affect your sexual function long term, you know, causing things like premature ejaculation and that sort of thing. What's your advice or, or idea or your thoughts on this? So I think masturbation is great and it's healthy. And I often joke that we're probably one of the few places that, you know, get you go home with homework, which is masturbate as often as possible. Um, I don't have a problem with pornography at all. And there's a lot of ethical pornography around. Now, I think the problem is, is when you just do something too much, everything in moderation. So, and you also, the problem with masturbation that we see mainly is that if people are always masturbating using their hand, then they need a lot of pressure. They, they kind of teach themselves that they need a lot of pressure to be able to reach orgasm. So that's where I think using toys for masturbation are really great because you don't end up with that, sorry, but death grip. Um, and you can be much gentler. You can use vibration. You can use lubricant. There's heated masturbation tools around. There's so many amazing things now that aren't going to cause those long-term problems of having too tight a grip and causing things like, I don't know if you've heard of um, hard flaccid syndrome and things like that. So Yes, I think self-pleasure is excellent. You know, loving yourself, having solo sex, all those things are great. And everything in moderation is good. And just using sex toys and not always your hand is particularly important so that your penis doesn't learn that it needs extreme pressure or the death grip to be able to function. Does that answer your question? Yes, it does. Definitely does. Gary once, I think, has a question that he wanted yeah. to ask. Um, Melissa, thanks so much. Um, very much enjoyed your presentation. Um, I'm a firm believer in one of the points that you made, and that is use it or lose it. Um, I know that that's something that uh, my surgeon, who was Philip Stricker actually, um, mentioned that to me. Um, and he also mentioned that, uh, you know, sex is very much in the mind. Um, one of the things I'd be interested in your view on <clears throat> is if we look at uh, our support group, for example, um, sex, your sexuality can, in a lot of men, define you. It's not just part of their life. Their sexuality defines them. And what we've found is that when we do have someone that, that presents like that, um, that it's very hard for them to then make a choice uh, on their treatment pathway because they're so afraid of the outcome and i'd be interested in your view on that and how you manage those kinds of people and what you say to someone that presents to you that um, their sexuality defines them it's not just part of the pie so to speak yeah yeah and i think that's a really good point actually we've i've got a patient at the moment that i've seen about three times and he's really worried about what treatment he is going to choose because the most important thing to him is his sexual function post-treatment 
And he has read everything on Google, every paper he can find, um, and then has come to see me three times to discuss this. And I keep saying the same thing to him, which is at the end of the day, we can always find a workaround for your sexual function. So I think the most important thing is make the decision for what treatment you're going to have based on your cancer and what's the best treatment to get rid of that. And then we can deal with whatever the fallout is from that. You know, there's penile implants, there's injectables, there's, you know, out of course. And I think that often those kind of men and this man in particular, he's very, very fixated on that having an erection is his masculinity. And so I've spent a lot of time talking to him about your erectile function is not your masculinity, your libido, the person you are, how you behave, all of those other things are so much more important. The erection, we can, we can fix that easily. That doesn't have to stay gone forever. And yes, it won't be, might not be spontaneous the same as it was, but we can definitely find a workaround. So I think there, that brings me back to that point as well about if they do have a partner, asking their partner to join them in one of these consults and say, what is it about your partner that you find masculine? Because that, you know, often, often these men think that that's how other people see them and it's so important, but then they're shocked to find out that it's not, it's not their sexual function that defines them as a man to other people, that they see them a different way, that the way they see the masculinity is their ability to provide or their strength of support or, or, or their intelligence or things like that. And I think that you just need to shine a mirror in these people's face to say, hey, you're not just about your sexual function and there's always a workaround. Yeah. I think the other point is, is that um, I give a number of talks to, to various groups as well. Um, and whether they're a straight group or whether they be an LGBTQIA plus group, um, whenever, when we're taught sex, we're taught sex. We're not taught love. And, exactly. you know, I, and I've used this before and said this in uh, the previous webinar that we had on mental health, that in a lot of cases, um, most people, and when I say that, it is most people, because when I've gone into to some presentations, um, I've said, can I have a show of hands that uh, of people that their last sexual encounter lasted longer than 15 to 20 minutes? And the, major <laughs> and the majority of the room, uh, the hands go up. And my point there is, is that um, it is, and my journey um, was very much about reinvention um, after I'd had, had my treatment. And uh, you, you, you're quite right. You can find more pleasure, I think, in, mm. in being able to rediscover love because it's the journey, not the final ejaculation. And for a lot of men, a lot of men, and even within our, our, our group, our uh, prostate cancer group, um, there are many who think that the ejaculation defines good or bad sex. Yeah. And it's not the case. Would you agree? Oh, definitely. And I, so many times when I talk to couples a year post, they've gone through all of this treatment and they've gone through rehabilitation and that they'll go, you know what? Our sex life is better now than it has been in many years because it's the first time we've actually spoken about it. It's really difficult. It's more difficult, I think, to speak to someone and open up a conversation about your sexuality and your intimate relationship with someone you've been with a long time than it is often with a new partner. 
because yesterday I actually saw a, an Asian couple in their 70s and he's just had prostate cancer treatment and we talked together and his wife at the end, because a lot of Asian people don't like talking about sex, actually said, this is the best thing that happened to us because I've wanted to talk about the change in our romantic relationship for the last four years, but I haven't had the haven't known how to bring it up. And now we have, because last time we came and saw you, we got in the car and talked about how what was important to us. So I think it just needs to be looked at as a change and a new adventure. And sometimes it's an advantage. And and learning new things is great. And and often, you know, I think one part of the relationship, if it's in a couple, will want to try new things, but they're embarrassed to suggest that. But this gives you the opportunity to go, hey, this is great. We can try something different now because it's not going to be the same as it used to be. I wanted to come in here. Um, very, There's a very interesting show on Netflix. I don't know if you've seen it. Well, there's quite a few. That's what's great about internet TV. About, and, and they talk about sex and intimacy and alternative you know, options. Uh, where this lady goes in and literally designs a sex room people actually have a room in their home dedicated just for sex and they've got all these toys and devices and tables special tables and i, I think it's such a, a great idea to have this dedicated space where you can be intimate um and that's different to the bedroom i thought um, that was great i watched the first time i'd seen that was last night actually it flashed up when i turned my netflix on and i watched one episode and i thought it was so fantastic you know we think about that whole idea of you have a dedicated corner for your yoga or your meditation practice how wonderful to have a dedicated room for pleasure and intimacy and and i, I always think that you know having a television in your bedroom is like relationship or sexual suicide so you should never have a have a TV in your bedroom is my point of view that I thought that um, the idea of designing a room around your intimate relationship was fantastic. Yeah, it was great. It was actually quite entertaining. Yeah, I mean, we can talk on this for such a long time and we do have other speakers I haven't, uh, we have to bear in mind. Just one other thing. I mean, what's your thought on things like tantric sex or Kama Sutra? And maybe you can just tell our audience a little bit of what that is and if there's any benefit for that. Yeah, sure. Um, so the Kama Sutra is very ancient and um, it's all the different positions for um, for sex. And oh, look, I've actually got a bracelet that my husband bought me. It's an antique bracelet and it's ivory. And on one side is flowers and you turn over each um, tile. It's like mahjong tiles. And on the other side is a different position of the, of the, of the Kama Sutra. So you can flip it over and go, what am I going to do today? Uh, I think it's great to read. It's a it's an interesting book, and also particularly as we age, we often often different positions don't work anymore that we're used to doing. So it's great to try something new. Um, tantric sex, I think, is is a really interesting thing to investigate. Um, same as sensate focus, because that is all about being connected to your person and and being at the sensation and the touch and everything else other than just your genitals. And I think that is so important. And if anyone has the opportunity to go to a, a tantric class, and even you don't even need, there's ones for single people too, don't be afraid. They're not some weird wacky thing where you get naked with a whole pile of strangers. They're often about sitting opposite someone and practicing eye contact and, and just being aware of who you are and, and someone else being present. So I think again, this is an opportunity to explore things you may never have needed to or even thought about before. So look at it as a new adventure. 
Melissa, that's wonderful. Thank you so much uh, for all your insights um, and for sharing your experience with us. So we'll keep you on the line, though. So if anyone thinks of any other questions they've always wanted to know about sex and intimacy, you can chuck it in the chat um, or you can ask again later. So we'll, we'll see Melissa again. But it's time now to move on to Kendall, who works with Melissa, and is, she's going to be talking to us about um, diet, nutrition, um, and watching our weight. Over to you, Kendall. Thank you. Um, how do I do this again? Can you see that? Yes, we can. Okay, great. Um, so yeah, thanks, Kelly. I'm Kendall. I'm also a nurse practitioner alongside Melissa. Um, so I've always worked in neurology for a long time and diabetes education um, and I also hold a nutrition degree and so I've always enjoyed the chronic disease sort of management side of things and, and weight loss. So today I just wanted to talk about obesity and, and what it means and, and what we can do for it um, because I think once people understand the mechanics of it, um, it kind of resonates with a lot of people where they go, ah, oh, that was me and that's what I'm going through and, and how we can sort of tackle different areas of it. So obesity um, refers to having excess body weight. It is now considered a chronic disease, just like diabetes and hypertension. It's not something where people choose to be overweight. I don't know any of my clients that just decided one day that they wanted to be overweight. The problem with obesity is that we're seeing an increased cancer risk and long-term um, mortality risk of diabetes, hypertension, and sleep apnea, and all those related problems. So 40% of all cancers are related to being overweight. Um, so prostate cancer, we know that there is a worsened prognosis of being overweight. So ideally before any sort of surgery or radiation treatment or any treatment that you're gonna be undergoing for prostate cancer, Losing that excess body weight around the midline area is super important because we know there is better outcomes. And I used to run a rapid weight loss clinic um, before for guys going into surgery and they'd always hate me during the whole process. Um, but afterwards they would go, oh, I woke up and I felt so much better and I feel so much better for this and I'm gonna keep it going. And so it's often quite a good turning point um, for a lot of the guys that I met, but if we can avoid getting to that position, um, what we're trying to aim for. So classification in adults, um, there's actually a different classification for people with Asian um, culture. So they have a slightly different uh, classification for them, but just for the general population, BMI is more to do about your height and your weight, um, but it's a very good tool to use for us to diagnose obesity. However, if you met my personal trainer, he's a very, very tall man, super, super um, muscular. Um, and so he would be considered obese. Um, so this is where the waist circumference um, is very important when we look at BMI on top. So for men, ideally, we want it to be less than 94 centimeters around the belly button and for women, less than 80 centimeters because we just increase our risk um, for cardiovascular disease, diabetes, metabolic syndrome, and stuff like that. So I've put this in here um, because if you are a little bit overweight, 
Uh, you can develop type 2 diabetes. I do know lots of skinny um, people with type 2 diabetes, so it's not always that stereotypical person that's very um, fat. Sorry, the sun's just coming through the window. Um, so a healthy fat cell that we'll have in our body, it will start to get overfilled with excess fat that we're putting it away into that cell and it becomes inflamed. And because the cell can only hold so much, it'll start to spill over into the liver. So we can pack a lot of fat in the liver and that'll also transfer into the other visceral organs like our heart, our pancreas. And because of that, that can lead to insulin resistance. And so this is considered pre-diabetes or our common favorite term is borderline diabetic. And there's two different types. So you might have um, impaired fasting glucose. So that's what IFG stands for. And that's usually to do with the liver. So there's lots of fat in the liver. And so the liver becomes less responsive to the insulin that we produce in our pancreas. So overnight, the liver is just slowly sleeping out glucose. And so when you wake up and you go and do that blood test, it'll show that it's going to be a little bit elevated. Sometimes it's just not elevated enough to classify you as type 2 diabetic. So we consider you as pre-diabetic. Then we have impaired glucose tolerance. So this is for people that have that peripheral resistance. So once they eat some food, goes into the tummy, gets broken down into a sugar molecule from the carbohydrate that you've eaten, and insulin tries to move that glucose into a cell, but the cell it gets too full. It's overfilled with that sugar or that fat. And so a little bit stays over into the bloodstream. And that's when we do a blood test, a random one, um, or that glucose challenge, and it might be a little bit raised. So that's what that's showing. And if we don't correct this, and this is that opportunity for weight loss, or we might start you on medication, it will turn to type 2 diabetes if we don't correct it. So obesity is multifactorial. So there's a lot of things that we need to consider when we meet someone who does um, struggle with their weight. So genetics, we unfortunately can't pick our family. Um, so we adopt a lot of genes from our parents and our grandparents. And this is also because we live too long now. So medical advances are great, um, but we are definitely passing a lot more chronic disease to ourselves and our future um, children. Medical, so any other comorbidity can increase our risk and conditions due to medications that we might be on, or if we suffer from rheumatoid arthritis, we're unable to exercise, which could increase our um, weight. Endocrine, so people that suffer from polycystic ovarian syndrome, they have insulin resistance, thyroid problems, we might um, find it difficult to lose weight. Neurobehavioral, so there is evidence to show that in the brain that can control our appetite regulation and what we enjoy eating. And then our external cues. And so I like to talk to people about this where they come home from work and they're in that habit where they feel super hungry and they might start to snack on something or they'll have dinner and start to watch TV and get bombarded by ads. And so it's that environmental cue that I'm feeling hungry and I need to go and eat something. So it's not just about eat less and more. We told this all the time, it's easy. Um, if it was that easy, I'm sure we would all be super slim um, and losing weight. 
but there's a lot more to weight loss and it's often due to the energy regulatory system that becomes dysregulated. And so we've got quite a few hormones related to um, our appetite and um, feeling of fullness. And one of those hormones is a GLP one. So it's a hormone that we produce naturally in our gut. And so when we have excess weight or we have type 2 diabetes, this hormone doesn't work as well as it so Our appetite receptors don't get switched off as easily. We don't get that insulin response from it. Ghrelin is our hungry hormone. So when we're fasting or we haven't eaten, that tends to go up and that signals our brain that we need to have something to eat. Then leptin comes in and that's our appetite suppressing hormone. So that tells us we're feeling nice and full. And there is a theory that there is a leptin resistance. So very similar to insulin resistance where we produce it in high amounts, but the body just becomes resistant to it. So these people just feel super, super hungry all the time. And so when you tell them to eat less and move more, they go, I'm hungry all the time. How can I eat less? Um, and then that insulin resistance that I was talking about. We also have a reward system that becomes very overactive. Um, so our brain is just constantly telling us to seek food to make us feel good. Processed foods hijack our appetite regulation. And I'll talk about that on the next slide. And we're our body's own adaptation to weight reduction. So our body is always going to try and fight against us, no matter how hard we try and lose weight. So this is the bliss point. Um, so this is when the food industry has created that perfect mix. So if you think about chocolate, they've got the perfect mix of sugar and fat, um, and we love it. And the same with crisps, you know, they're nice and salty and crunchy. Um, we get that awesome mouthfeel. And we've seen this in a metabolic ward chamber study um, by Kevin Hall, where they had two groups. One was going to have ultra processed foods and one that was going to have an unprocessed diet. And they matched them for the salt and fiber and fat in the meal. And they found that people that were eating the ultra processed, they actually ate about 500 calories more than the unprocessed diet um, group. So it's just interesting how much um, these sort of foods uh, interact in our brain and reward us for it. So our body's adaptation to weight loss, um, there's a theory called the set point weight theory, and it literally is that obesity is not their fault. And so what it is in very simple terms is that they say that a little part in the brain, the hypothalamus, decides what weight they want you to be at. And so every time you try and go below that level, the body works a way to bring you back up again. And often I see people that start a weight loss journey and they hit that weight plateau and they go, but I'm doing everything. What more can I do? I've hit this you know, plateau and they usually fall off the wagon at this point because they think all hell, you know, it's all failed. Um, but what we need to remember is that because we're losing weight, our body is trying to adapt to what we're doing. And for every one kilo of loss, our basal metabolic rate actually drops a little bit. And that makes sense because we weigh less. We don't need to expend as much energy to keep ourselves um, alive. But the other side of it is that when we lose weight, our appetite actually increases. And so people feel more hungry. And so unfortunately, weight regain is actually quite common. 
Um, biology wins long-term. So like I said, we can't pick our family. We just have the genetics that are inbuilt. And we know that if someone loses about 20 kilos of weight, you will generally regain about 75% of that within the five years, unfortunately. We're still trying to work out a way on how we can keep that um, a lot lower. But the way I look at it is that if you've lost 20 kilos and you gain 10, you're still winning at the end of the day. So obesogenic medications. Um, so it's always good to do a medication run through with a patient to find out what they are taking and if that's causing them to gain weight. So diabetes is a common one. So we're trying to manage the blood sugars and we put them on all these medications and insulin makes people gain weight, unfortunately. Sulfonylureas, they work by talking to the pancreas to produce more insulin and they make you feel hungry and they also make you gain weight, which becomes counterproductive. Antidepressants, um, so it talks to that reward system in our brain. So if we're feeling depressed, we make them feel a little bit better. And so we eat a lot more um, because we're feeling great. Antipsychotics, anticonvulsants, so people are, who need epilepsy medication and long-term corticosteroids and steroids can also um, help us gain weight. And so it's always good to find those medications that are causing the trouble and there's always ones that you can pick as an alternative um, if you needed to. So diets don't work when there's a beginning and an end. Um, and I'll explain why. So there's lots of diets that we can pick from. There's always that person on Instagram talking about what they eat in a day and this is how I lost all my weight, but we're all very individual. So low carbohydrate diets, that seems to still be the buzz and ketogenic. Um, so you do lose a lot of weight initially, but we know now from longer term trials is that you were in a calorie deficit anyway, um, so it isn't actually far superior in the long run. Low fat, the same. So if we look at the total calories that you were taking in for the day, if it's controlled, it's not far superior again for body fat loss. Um, then Michael Mosley um, made a big splash on the market with his uh, five and two diet or the alternate day fasting or the time-restricted eating. Again, they're not far superior in terms of diet uh, management. If you are reducing your total calories in for the day, generally those are the benefits only. So I'm more about picking stuff that you really enjoy and try and work within that calorie deficit. So long-term adherence is probably the most important message to take away from this, that if you find that you really enjoy doing time-restricted eating where you fast for 16 hours of the day and only eat with an eight-hour period, that's great. If it works for you, then we will keep going with it. But I often find that when someone is fasting for that long, they feel really hungry and then they'll use that eight hours to binge food. And so it's not creating a good habit or a good relationship with their diet plan. So for me, long-term adherence where we can learn about what we're eating and how we can add that chocolate in or that, you know, glass of wine in, I think that's definitely a long-term um, habit that we want to succeed with. It can be a lifelong battle. And this is what I talk to a lot of people about because we have to think back to that set point weight theory and genetics. 
And so once you've lost the weight, this is going to be a lifelong change that you do need to continue because we know ultimately you might put that weight back on again. So our toolbox. Uh, so if we've tried diet and exercise alone and we don't find that we win with that, there are lots of medications on the market now that we can prescribe to um, have as a tool up our sleeve. And so we've got this GLP-1 injections now. And so it's an injection that you put in your tummy and it amplifies the effect of the hormone that we naturally produce in our guts. So it slows down gastric emptying, it makes you feel fuller for longer. And so people do find a, a lot of benefit from these medications. We've also got naltrexone and bupropion on the market. It's called Contrave. Also really, really exciting medication that people can take as a tablet. Orlistat, if you're game for it, it's an old school medication. It's awful. It basically works by blocking fat in the diet. And the only way it comes out of your body, the fat that you haven't absorbed, it literally leaks out of your bottom. So it's very effective at weight loss, but it is just awful to go on. And then fentanyl has been around for a long time. Um, Duramine, it's like taking legal speed. Uh, it does offer appetite suppression and um, we can add it with another medication called topiramate, um, but benefits are pretty good with that, but we only usually see that in the States because we are about two to five years behind the States in terms of um, medication management. So it's never a failure if you go to your health professional and say, I've tried diet and exercise, I'm just not winning. What else is there? Go on a medication because we know they will certainly help you um, to get you there. Because combining interventions leads to better weight loss. And so when we look at just that behavioral change, so diet and exercise, we generally only see about three to 5% of weight loss, which is still good overall, um, but we want to see better than that. So when we had uh, weight loss medications, we now see between 5 to even 20%. And in the States, they've got some really game-changing medication now where you're almost having a chemical sleeve with medications now. Super, super exciting what's coming through. And so people are losing between 5 to 30% of their body weight. So very, very exciting. Um, but for those people that just have that really strong genetic push to keep them at that weight, um, bariatric surgery is definitely recommended and I'm all for surgery. Again, it's not a failure. It's definitely a tool that you can use and people have made great progress with that. So I put this on here because I think it's important to see, you know, when you see someone they go, oh, I've only lost a kilo or two this week. And I think, well, that's more than what you had the other week. And when you work it out, you know, if you've just lost that 5%, we're already seeing improvements in your blood pressure. We're already seeing, seeing improvements in glucose um, management. It's great when we get to the 10 to 15% loss um, because we are changing things inside us. We are reducing cardiovascular risk um, of disease non-alcoholic um, liver disease. Um, so where that fat goes into the liver and it packs itself in there, that can be reduced because we're reducing visceral fat, RSA. So um, people with sleep apnea, if there's a lot of fat around that neck area, that can be improved. 
board. So reflux that should um, settle with any sort of weight loss and obviously dietary changes and knee osteoarthritis. So you meet people who've been told to eat less and move more and they go, if I walk, my knees hurt, my hips hurt, my ankles hurt. Um, so often they need to go on medication to try and lose the weight first before they can undertake exercise and um, Rob will go through that. Um, and type 2 diabetes remission. So we use the word remission. There's no cure for type 2 diabetes. Um, and so there's some strict criteria also on the remission side. Um, but if we can take you off medication where you just become diet control type 2 diabetic, um, it's great. And we obviously reduce mortality with um, greater than 15% loss. Physical activity. Um, so with physical activity, we know that with running on a treadmill and trying to do lots of cardio exercise, you generally will only cover about 10% of weight loss through it, but it doesn't discredit the benefits of exercise. We change body composition. We obviously utilize that extra glucose that's running around the body and we expend that as energy. We fix cholesterol, we reduce blood pressure, um, risk of certain cancers, mental health. So I love a good walk. So my biggest thing is that I tell patients, never go and get a personal trainer. Don't sign up at the gym and start doing F45. If you know it's not something that you're going to enjoy, I am a firm believer that a good walk and a good podcast is the best thing because you feel better for it and it's simple and it's easy to do and reduces pain. So people that have a lot of pain, back pain, exercise is actually really important for that sort of stuff. So a simple wrap up, um, maintaining a healthy body weight reduces your risk um, for further complications down the line and makes living with a chronic disease so much easier. Small changes every day is a great achievement. And so if you came and saw me and you lost 400 grams in the week, I will still jump up and give you a high five because it's a great achievement because weight loss is not easy. Um, if it was, like I said, we'd all be running around skinny. Small weight loss, five to 10% is great. It'll make a huge difference and seek help if you need support. Don't sit there and go, I've tried everything. Um, and everything's just not working and you just feel so low and depressed about it, ask for help. There are lots of tools out there for people that are struggling. And that's me. Kendall, thank you so much right on time. Um, I think what I'm going to do is segue straight into, into Professor Rob Newton's uh, talk on exercise, which links in very well with yours. I think we can all just do a little stretch and shake out our hands and just move around a little bit for a few seconds. Um, and while Rob he prepares his presentation for us um, and shares screen. Um, but yes, Stephanie, all get up, move. <laughs> And thank you, Kendall. If there's questions, if there's questions for Kendall, please hold on to them and we'll ask at the end of Rob's talk. Um, so, and, or you can post them in the Q&A once again or the chat. Please do ask any questions and we'll answer them at the end. Okay, over to Professor Robert Newton from Edith Cowan University. Great, uh, thanks, Kelly. Can you um, hear me okay? And can you see yep, the slides can... okay? Yeah, you see your slides, all good. Fantastic, okay, let's get going. So I'm going to talk this afternoon, and thanks very much for the opportunity to uh, speak today, uh, about exercise as a medicine. 
I'm going to change my slide. Here we go. Okay. Over the, my team and I have been studying exercises of medicine for pretty much the last two decades. And I got into this area because my father and my favourite uncle actually both died of prostate cancer. And I saw the way in which um, you know, their medical treatment was very, very good. And the issue was this overwhelming fatigue that they experienced. And they, they basically were told to rest. And as an exercise uh, physiologist, I thought that this cannot be right. Uh, and telling a patient to rest is simply not going to work. And I saw this and I, I tried to get my dad to exercise. Come on, dad, let's go for a walk. You know, let's lift some weights. Let's, let's do something. And he said, no, no, I've been told that I, I have to rest. And, and two years later, he died of a stroke. Now, exercise is being used extensively right across the cancer continuum. And it, it is pre-diagnosis. Obviously, if you are more physically active, you're less likely to get a whole range of cancers, in particular uh, breast cancer or colorectal cancer, but I'll be talking mainly about once you've had that cancer diagnosis, the bad news there, and on this cancer control here, right through the um, spectrum along the journey that you go. And we're applying exercises and medicine pre-treatment. Uh, it's very, very effective at this point in time. Uh, certainly leading up to prostatectomy, we are doing a, have done a series of trials where we're trying to get the man as fit as we possibly can before he goes in for prostatectomy for surgery. Quite often this will involve uh, a, a huge focus on weight loss and I'll present some of our research on that uh, as well to try and reduce body fat. But also it's used extensively prior to chemotherapy and uh, radiation therapy, again to get the man more resilient uh, prior to receiving those therapies. And that, in this context it's called neoadjuvant, in other words before the, uh, the primary treatment. Certainly exercise is used extensively during treatment. Uh, it's now well recognised that um, particularly men on uh, androgen deprivation therapy, whilst extremely effective for slowing the prostate cancer progression, it does have a range of side effects. And uh, exercise from our, uh, research from our team, but from others have demonstrated that exercise can pretty much prevent all of those uh, side effects of ADT. But also exercise has been used during uh, radiation therapy and chemotherapy as well. Uh, we know that if you exercise during chemotherapy, you will have less side effects and you will tolerate a higher dosage. And so that means that you have less likely to have a dose reduction. So you're more likely to have a successful treatment. But increasingly we see research emerge, which is showing that exercise actually facilitates uh, chemotherapy. By increasing blood pressure and blood flow, it tends to distribute the chemotherapy more effectively uh, and a whole range of other mechanisms related to the immune system where it actually improves the effectiveness of the chemotherapy. Over the last four years, we've been doing research uh, exercising patients immediately before they receive a fraction of radiation therapy, so immediately before they go in to uh, have the radiation. And again, this is rec uh, recommended uh, that if you're receiving radiation therapy, it will be very good, if you can do it, to do a brief bout of exercise immediately before you go in. The reason for this is that radiation therapy uh, works in two ways. It kills the cancer cells directly because it damages the DNA directly through the radiation, but it also uh, produces what are called um, uh, radical oxy oxygen species. And they also damage the DNA. 
But in the absence of oxygen, they're able to, the DNA, it can be repaired. And so you don't get the same damage to the cancerous cells. Now, that's a problem because in prostate cancers, they generally have a disorganised blood flow, uh, low perfusion, so low blood flow, but also low oxygen. And this impedes the effectiveness of radiation therapy. When we exercise, we get a nice surge in blood flow. And so this has been demonstrated in animals, and, and we were one of the first to do this in humans, where we see that there's increased blood flow, and so you're getting more uh, prostate cancer cells being destroyed by the uh, radiation therapy. Certainly during recovery, and this is where exercise in the main has been applied as a medicine in cancer uh, management, is once you've had all your treatments, is helping you to recover, uh, to uh, reduce your risk of getting, developing other chronic diseases, and, uh, such as cardiovascular disease, for example. And then also the long-term prevention of uh, the disease coming back. And this is a great fear, obviously, for someone who is a cancer survivor, is, is this going to come back? What we do know that in, certainly in breast cancer and prostate cancer, if you are physically active, you halve your risk of that disease returning for a whole range of reasons. Exercise is also used as a medicine uh, during end stage of life in palliation here, where the cancer can no longer be cured. It is really about using exercise to maintain as good a quality of life as possible, maintaining physical function as well. And also research is showing that it also will likely slow the progression and extend survival. And uh, we, uh, uh, Edith Cowan University and my team are, are leading a international trial funded by Movember. And we're actually, uh, it will be the first trial ever in the world to see if exercise has a causative effect in extending life in men with stage four metastatic prostate cancer. I just want to present one piece of data here. There's many, many of these studies now, epidemiological studies. Now, this particular one from Stacey Kenfield, University of California, San Francisco. And uh, this is a very uh, nice study here because it demonstrates a couple of things. First off, it what they showed was that men that did more than three hours per week of physical activity halved their risk of all-cause mortality, of dying of anything. That's not so stunning um, because we all know that if you exercise more, that you're less likely to die of something. But um, it's interesting that they also showed a 61% lower risk of prostate cancer-specific death. So we see here that exercise seems to be protective at reducing the progression of the disease. But they did note a difference between uh, low to moderate intensity versus those people that did vigorous activity. And they had a much higher protective factor if you did vigorous activity. So it's not just that exercise is just one medicine. Exercise is not aspirin. Uh, it's many, many different uh, types of medicine. And the, the mode of exercise, and we'll talk a little bit about that later, but also how it's prescribed. The dosage has enormous impact on what the actual outcomes are. And in the main, it's been demonstrated that uh, different modes have different effects and benefit different aspects of what is causing the most difficulty for the patient. And we will talk a little bit more about this. But wow. 61% lower risk of prostate cancer death if you do three or more hours per week of vigorous activity. Why? How does this occur? Well, in 2016, we published a paper, uh, a review in Nature Reviews Urology. At that time, we proposed 10 mechanisms by which exercise actually influences prostate cancer biology. 
it actually produces changes in the systemic environment and in the microenvironment within the tumour itself, which have anti-cancer properties. One of the, these areas which we spent a lot of work on, and I can't present it today due to time constraints, but we have published several papers on this uh, 2021 and also again this year. And changes in the myokine and adipokine profile. So cytokines are small signaling molecules which are produced by most tissues in the body. When they're produced by the muscles, they're called termed myokines. When they're produced by the fat tissue, they're called adipokines. Now, myokines have a strong suppressive effect on prostate cancer growth. They, they, uh, they tend to suppress the cancer cells from growing and proliferating, and they also tend to reduce its tendency to metastasize, to spread to other tissues. Unfortunately, adipokines have the adverse uh, effect. They uh, actually tend to create a more pro-cancer environment. So we have a problem when we have a low level of muscle mass and a high level of fat mass. If you like your yin and your yang, it's totally out of balance. And so I'll present some you know, data that we published recently showing the importance of muscle mass. Now, there's a whole range of other factors that contribute as well. Immune function is a huge one, and you probably many of you will have heard of the, you know, the, the sort of holy grail at the moment is the development of new immunotherapies. These are drugs which um, act to actually switch on the body's immune system in, and they help it to recognize cancer cells and, and destroy them. Now, exercise has an enormous impact on our immune system. It upregulates it, it produces, causes our body to produce more natural killer cells and other T cells, and it also drives those cells into the tumor tissue. And then through the action of myokines and other hormones, it switches them on and makes them, if you like, um, much more uh, able to locate cancer cells, identify them correctly, and then destroy them. There's other factors such as hormonal factors, which I won't go into, uh, systemic inflammation, oxidative stress, changes in tumor vascularization that exercise induces as well, uh, genetic and epigenetic changes, telomere alterations, and then modulating of other circulating factors that uh, Kendall mentioned a few of them. For example, um, you're having a high level of insulin because your body's trying to bring your blood glucose down, it's, 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 it's constantly trying to pump out insulin to try and do that, but it's, it can't achieve that because the tissues are not actually reacting to it. The tissues are insulin resistant. But that environment, it's a very pro-cancer environment because this insulin is also, and other growth factors are also signaling to the cancer cells to grow, as well as they're signaling to other cells in the body. So, uh, this is, so it's a little bit of a complex slide, this one. And uh, this was a paper, uh, it was actually um, published in Breast Cancer Reviews, but it applies to all cancers. So there's two aspects to this. When each time we exercise, we produce a surge of anti-cancer drugs within our body. And that's why exercise is now termed a medicine. The reason why is it produces endogenous or internal medicines. And these medicines, of course, are extremely powerful. And they are, include catecholamines, for example, adrenaline, noradrenaline, a whole range of other hormones, but also these smaller signaling molecules called myokines. So every time we exercise, we dose our body with anti-cancer drugs. Then if we train long-term, where we train for three, six months, where we exercise regularly, then what we see is we have a systemic change in the pro-cancer um, drugs, if you like, internal drugs, such as insulin, sex hormones, and inflammatory markers. So that is why we need to exercise regularly and long-term. Now, <clears throat> 
I was asked to speak a little bit about uh, overweight and uh, obesity. And this was a paper that we published uh, last year in prostatic cancer, prostate cancer and prostatic diseases. And this was a, an analysis of a large number of, uh, of other studies here. It's what's called a meta-analysis. And what we looked at was uh, patients who are low fat mass versus high fat mass and their overall survival. And what we see is there's no effect here. Uh, this one means that it's neutral. There's no benefit being of high fat and there's no negative effect of being high fat. Same, there's no, no benefit of being low fat. Uh, however, we also looked at muscle mass. And what we see here is that there's a quite a positive effect here, a benefit favoring high muscle mass. Now, I'm not discounting the fact that overweight and obesity is a problem if you have more problem whether you've got prostate cancer or not uh, for a whole range of reasons. And, uh, but in terms of prostate cancer, being of high body fat is a problem because of that adipokine myokine balance and also because of the way in which high fat ma uh, mass influences all of our hormones within our body and a whole range of other mechanisms. But we have to recognize that muscle mass is a critical player in this. We have to maintain as much muscle mass as we possibly can. And here we see it is actually a higher driver of mortality than is high fat mass. So uh, working with one of our local urologists here, we did launch a study, um, and Kim, I think, might have been involved in this, and this was um, a rapid weight loss prior to prostatectomy, a robot-assisted prostatectomy in overweight and obese patients. And this was a local urologist here, uh, Dr. Tom Shannon, uh, within his clinic. Uh, as a urologist, he was recognising the increasing uh, number of patients coming through his door which were overweight and obese, and how um, well recognised that the outcomes from surgery are much worse in these patients. So. He implemented within his practice this rapid weight loss through dietary restriction. Now, what this involved was 90 minutes per day of aerobic exercise, uh, which is a lot. Okay, this is a lot. And as Kendall well pointed out, exercise is not very effective for reducing fat mass. And uh, you have to do a lot of it. The current recommendation in national is 300 minutes per week or more. Now, they were allowed to do resistance exercise, but it was not required. And in fact, most of the patients didn't do any resistance exercise or if you like weight training, strength training. But they were put on a very low energy diet there. And it was up to 12 weeks duration leading up to their prostatectomy. Now, what we found was some very encouraging uh, loss of body composition here, changes in terms of total body weight was reduced. You can see there by about 7.3 kilos. Total fat mass down by five kilos. These are fantastic reductions. 3.1% body fat reduction there as well. This is great. Wow, fantastic. Until we get down here and we look at lean mass. These men also lost 2.4 kilograms of lean mass, muscle mass, uh, if you like. And their apodicular skeletal muscle mass also down 1.2. So this is the muscle of the arms and the legs. They're losing 1.2 kilograms uh, in as little as 12 weeks. This is a major concern. Why? Because of the previous uh, slide that I showed you where overall survival is, is very closely linked to the level of muscle mass that the patient has in terms of prostate cancer. Also, if the patient has to progress to uh, other treatments, for example, chemotherapy, low muscle mass causes great, much higher levels of chemotherapy toxicities and side effects you're much more likely to have to have a dose reduction where the, where the oncologist will give you less chemotherapy. That translates to 
uh, a risk that you will not actually kill the cancer and destroy the cancer. So muscle mass is super important. Now, this here, if we see here, this is the uh, the actual waterfall plot. So this is the, each individual patient. You can see that some of these patients lost a lot of fat mass here. There were a few that didn't lose nearly as much as you can see here in trunk fat mass as well. But what is, again, really problematic is that pretty much every single patient, except this outlier here, lost lean mass and skeletal muscle mass, as you can see here. Some of them lost almost five kilos of appendicular skeletal muscle mass. That is a lot of muscle to lose off the arms and legs. So on the basis of this, we then launched another study. Uh, this was a 12-week uh, intervention. Again, 300 minutes per week of exercise. Energy deficit there, you can see, uh, was quite considerable. But we enforced, or uh, required, if you like, sorry, enforced is a bit harsh. We um, had the men doing resistance training. And we published this in 2021 in Medicine, Science, Sport and Exercise. So what we saw was very encouraging results in terms of muscle strength. They got it certainly a lot stronger, which is great. And, and muscle strength is very, very important because it determines how functional you are. In particular, as you age, muscle mass and muscle strength are absolutely crucial for maintaining functional capability and quality of life. Uh, also, their cardiorespiratory or their aerobic fitness increased quite markedly as well, which is great. But here's the data for body composition. And we can see here that the majority of men lost total um, uh, body mass, trunk fat mass, most of them lost quite nicely, and visceral fat mass. So this is great. This is a really good outcome. And we show that on average, there was no decline in muscle mass. So the resistance training across the whole group was able to maintain their muscle mass. Very, very important outcome. However, if we delve into the individual data, we see that while some men actually increase muscle mass, some continue to lose. And this is, again, a problem. We do have to address this um, with some further research. But I think the take-home point is uh, that we have to um, recognise that any weight loss program, whether it be through diet, through drugs, or whether it's through uh, bariatric surgery, is a fat loss program. But it is also a muscle and bone loss program. Because if you do not combine that with resistance training, you will lose muscle and fat. And the only way to, as I say, to prevent that is through resistance training. I'll just turn our attention to uh, some of our work in uh, sexual health and prostate cancer. And this is, uh, the other speakers have mentioned this, but this is a major concern for men with prostate cancer and their partners. And I thought this was brought home to me many years ago. I was giving a presentation in Cairns, mind you, for the Prostate Cancer Foundation of Australia. And I gave a talk and we were presenting some of our data on controlling cardiovascular disease in men on androgen deprivation, because that is a major concern. Most, most men are going on to ADT. The major survival concern is that they quickly develop uh, metabolic syndrome, cardiovascular disease, and quite often will, as my dad did, go to uh, have a serious event such as stroke or heart attack. So I presented this and the whole group of people and their partners came up to me after the talk and they said, wow, Prof, that was semi-interesting, but you're not addressing the real problem that we face. And I said, well, okay, what's that? And they said, urinary incontinence and sexual dysfunction. And many of them said, look, if I knew it was gonna be like this, I'd rather be dead. So it's a major issue, and I think um, the other two speakers have really have really addressed this very, very well. So we published in uh, 2013 this paper. 
There was a, an opinion piece around exercise as a potential therapy to address sexual dysfunction after prostate cancer. So this was a, a study that we did, a randomised control trial over three months here, and we looked at sexual activity domains there uh, of libido and level of sexual activity. This is all in men undergoing ADT because the ADT removal of testosterone uh, you know, causes a considerable uh, reduction in sexual health. And uh, pleasingly, what we found was that sexual activity was maintained in the group that exercised compared to usual care. We also found that libido, if you had, look at look here, any interest in sex, there was a considerable reduction in the usual care group over the 12 weeks. Sorry, I forgot to mention, this is the initial 12 weeks of ADT. So they're just commencing ADT, and uh, which was encouraging you. But any major interest in sex here, we saw in the usual care group, it went to zero. So it, it does appear that physical exercise can have a benefit in terms of sexual activity and libido and overall sexual health. Now, those, uh, those sexual activity appears or was linked to um, greater libido. Why does this happen with exercise? Well, of course, when you exercise, particularly when you lift weights, then you, know, you have this, this feeling of, of um, resilience. Uh, you feel stronger, you are getting stronger, your muscles are growing bigger, and you, you feel more functional. And also you have some lovely uh, other hormones uh, that are released in the body. Obviously, uh, testosterone is not a factor here because it's being um, pharmaceutically clamped down. However, other hormones uh, become quite active when we, when we do resistance training. So the men felt better, they felt stronger, more masculine, through lifting weights, and this translated to increased libido and increased sexual activity. I want to move on now and just talk about what the current recommendations around exercise are. And in 2019, my colleagues and I published the Australian guidelines on exercise medicine in cancer management. And uh, what I think of this, if anyone would like any of these papers, please just email me. My email is on the last slide. Contact me. I'm happy to send you copies of these papers. So what are the foundation exercise prescriptions? It needs to be, in, in general, multimodal. So it needs to be a combination of aerobic and resistance exercise. Uh, look, I take Kendall's point, walking is great. Um, what's the best exercise you can do? Probably the exercise that you will do. And that's important. Um, however, I think we can do much better than that. I think that uh, we have to um, do both aerobic and resistance exercise. And in some ways, we have to think of exercise as a medicine. Um, if, particularly if we're facing considerable risk in terms of our uh, morbidity and mortality. Uh, physical activity is great, playing golf, you know, line dancing, whatever is great. But there's another aspect to this as a patient that uh, you have to focus as exercise as a medicine. Now, it may not necessarily be pleasant. Um, that's just the way it is. We're trying through exercise to address a major health issue which might kill you. So chemotherapy is not pleasant, okay? In some ways, the exercise may not be pleasant, uh, but it's being done to, to address a particular issue. And that's why this priority uh, here is very important. So what we do is, uh, as exercise physiologists is evaluate the health issues, working closely with the GP and the oncologist, urologist, to find out what is the health issue causing the greatest problem for this patient? What is most likely going to cause the morbidity or to, uh, to cause their death? and then target that specifically with exercise medicine. It needs to be monitored to high intensities. Gentle exercise does not produce the changes structurally, but also chemically within our body that we need. So it needs to be high intensity. Frequency, it needs to be most days. 
if you can, it's it's like spreading the dosage. If you've got a headache, you don't take a bottle of Panadol, paracetamol, all right, to get rid of it. You, they, they say spread it out during the day. Also, because if you took a bottle, you'd end up in um, in emergency. Um, so it's better to do a little bit each day rather than do it all on a Saturday, for example, and try to accumulate this exercise medicine. Progression's important. So as you get stronger and more fit, you need to increase the um, uh, the absolute intensity and maintain the same relative intensity. Periodization. We've been doing this with athletes for more than two millennia. Um, the ancient Greeks used to do it. You don't do the same thing every single day. You, you vary it across the week. So you'll have high intensity sessions, lower intensity sessions across the month and round events. So for example, we are now uh, prescribing exercise so that men receiving radiation therapy will actually exercise just immediately before uh, they actually receive their fraction of uh, radiation. The same for chemotherapy. We periodize it around when they're getting their chemotherapy infusion. And we use autoregulation, patient-driven. In other words, if you're feeling flat on a day, change it and do something more gentle. But if you're feeling sharp, you go, wow, I feel pretty good today. And that's the time to ramp it up and increase the intensity. Aerobic exercise, you're probably all familiar with, emphasizes the cardiorespiratory system. There um, is minimum probably 20 minutes to get the sort of changes you can do. But if you can only do 10 minutes to start, that's fine. Something is better than nothing. Um, generally, the generic prescription is 75 to 150 minutes per week of vigorous to moderate aerobic exercise. But as I mentioned earlier, for fat loss, it needs to be 300 minutes or more, and it will not, not be terribly effective unless it's combined with um, uh, dietary uh, caloric restriction. Moderate intensity continuous training is what most of us are familiar with. This is when you go out for a 20 minute walk or a, a row or a cycle or a swim or whatever. But because of this, you have to stay what's below what's called the anaerobic threshold. Otherwise, you can imagine if you went flat out, you've got your runners on, ran out the front door and went as fast as you could, you're only going to run for about one minute and then you're going to have to stop and recover. Um, so you have to stay below that level so you can continue. Now, that's great and has really good benefits for the cardiorespiratory system, but it doesn't stimulate a lot of the mechanisms that we want to actually develop to help fight the cancer. So we prescribe interval training extensively for our patients. This is where you alternate work and rest intervals. Um, so you might, for example, um, run 100 metres and then walk back to the start. Run 100 metres. Or uh, if you're swimming, for example, it means nice 50 metres, stop at the end, recover, then you do the next one, etc. It can be any exercise, really. We're also using what's called high-intensity interval training. And this is where you are working at pretty much at your maximum, but for very short periods of time here. So you might hit out for... Uh, 20 seconds or 30 seconds uh, with a maximal effort on a treadmill or on a cyclogometer or, um, you know, it might be in the pool. And then you drop it back and you have a recovery of perhaps um, two to three times that amount of, uh, of work interval there. This allows you to push well into your what's called your anaerobic threshold and then recover to do that again. And uh, this has been very, very effective, particularly with patients experiencing a lot of fatigue and uh, due to the cancer or to its treatment. And uh, look, it often comes up when I present this and people go, but you can't, you can't give that to older people. Well, yes, you can. Uh, and also people say you can't give it to people that have a lot of disease burden. Yes, you can. We're actually using high-intensity interval training in our um, that, uh, GAP4 study that I mentioned earlier in men with advanced metastatic prostate cancer. However, it is all about the supervision and how it's monitoring. And really for that type of exercise, you need to be under the supervision of a accredited exercise physiologist. 
Resistance exercise is equally as important and depending on the issues that you're facing, it might be more important and that may have to be the focus. So this is generally performing um, exercise against resistance with a machine. It could be body weight, it could be dumbbells or barbells. We use weighted bags a lot. Um, a lot of our patients who want to exercise at home, we have them find an old backpack. Everyone's got backpacks. I don't know, we, we collect them for some reason, especially if you've got kids. Every time you open a, a cupboard or go out to the garage, backpacks fall everywhere. Um, but you can get a backpack and you, you can get garbage bags, fill them with sand or something similar, and then tie them up and put them in the backpack. The more um, garbage bags of sand you put in, the heavier it is. Backpacks are sturdy, you zip it up, and then it's got handles on it, and you can do a really good full body workout with a backpack that's been weighted. The minimum is two sessions per week. You have to exercise every major muscle group at least twice per week. If you go to more than four or more sessions, you have to split the program. Uh, you can't exercise the same muscle group twice within 48 hours. It needs time to recover. Um, <clears throat> keep going. Um, so I just wanted to um, you know, give you some, just an overall background of the importance of exercise as a medicine. The fact that it's not a single medicine, it's many different medicines and how it's actually are prescribed and dosed has very, very different effects. I do want to, um, Kelly said I could do a bit of a plug uh, for our work. Um, so we're currently recruiting for two major research trials in prostate cancer. Uh, one is men that are on active surveillance, so that uh, have early stage disease, not progressing quickly, and they've been advised, look, don't do anything, let's just watch and wait. So we're running a trial there, recruiting those patients. And it's to look to see if exercise actually slows them and prevents them from moving to uh, requiring active therapy. The other study is one which I have talked a lot about. This is the November funded GAP4 study, which is in men with advanced metastatic cancer. So any man with metastatic prostate cancer is eligible for this study. Uh, and again, it is exploring how, whether exercise can actually um, prolong survival. We also offer clinical services as well at our exercise medicine clinic here. That's our website. Face-to-face uh, -face in Perth, we have six clinics in Perth, but also we provide telehealth as well, uh, including Medicare rebatable uh, support through the uh, chronic disease management plan, which you can get from your um, uh, general practitioner as well. There's my email again, if anyone wants to contact me. And also if you'd like any of these studies, these papers, I'll be happy to send them out to you if you reach out to me. So thank you very much for the opportunity. Thank you. Rob, once again, thank you so much. That was a great uh, talk. Um, and thanks for the practical advice that you've given um, and useful to know for our patients that they have access to exercise physiologists, uh, which is covered by Medicare. So that's very useful to know. Um, and all they would need is a, is a uh, referral letter from a GP. Is that correct? Yes, that, that's correct. I, I, didn't, I should have mentioned that you can actually find an exercise physiologist and um, if you go to the uh, Exercise Sports Science Australia website, um, if, if actually, if you just type into your browser, find an AEP, it'll take you to a, a, a website where you can put in your postcode uh, and you can put in that you're, you, know, um, you want a specialist in cancer and that will give you a list of all of the exercise physiologists in your uh, local area. That's very useful to know. And many of them, as you said, are doing telehealth. So you could also choose someone in a different part of the country. Yeah. And we forgot to mention you also an accredited exercise physiology. You're not just a researcher. I forgot to mention yeah, that. Yeah, I, I, I absolutely love my research, but I absolutely love my clinical work as well. Um, yeah, it's uh, very rewarding and I very much enjoy it. So I'm gonna, it's great to uh, keep my, um, uh, my hand in the, in the uh, game.
That's great. Uh, Rob, so there's a, let me start with you. There's a question from one participant to all three of you. Um, Rob, is there a typical exercise plan available? Is there such a thing? Um, if there is, I think that the general recommendation from uh, the Clinical Oncology Society of Australia uh, and the American um, Cancer Society uh, is that most patients should try to do 75 to 150 minutes per week of aerobic exercise. And uh, it doesn't really matter what it is, to be honest. If you like to row or you like to swim in the ocean or you know cycle, whatever, it, it probably doesn't matter that much. Um, and you also, the recommendation is two or more resistance training sessions per week, and that's equally as important. And I think that's a problem because a, a lot of people and, can't get their head around that, particularly with older patients, but they're lifting weights, you go, that doesn't seem right. But all the research indicates that that's absolutely critical. So that's your generic recommendation. Um, and, and, and from there, there's just a plethora of uh, home-based programs that are available. Uh, I'd be happy to send people if they contact me a generic program that they can do at home uh, of exercises with no equipment, uh, basically just body weight. And as I say, your, your weighted backpack. That's wonderful. All right, everyone, we have 10 minutes to ask as many questions as we can. So um, Kendall, there's a question for you now, uh, also from a participant asking, can pre-diabetes be managed with just diet alone? And if so, are those diets available? It can, but it's not necessarily a fixed diet. So you'll often hear in the news or, you know, research that a low carbohydrate diet is the best thing for prediabetes or diabetics. Um, but that's not necessarily the case. It's more about just controlling what you're eating and weight loss is probably the most important for prediabetes. So it's not a very simple answer to give. Um, it's working out which diet suits you and what we can reduce in terms of the calorie intake. But there's no fixed diet um, for prediabetes. Yep. Thank you, that's good advice. Yep. And I suppose if you're always on your best to see a specialist like yourself, right? Yeah. Um, because some things do need to be tailored specifically. Very to, individual, yeah. Yeah, to the individual. Um, but great, thank you. And then a question to Melissa. Um, uh, you had suggested uh, that there's a non-injecting erection device um, because this participant does use the injectables. So things like Cabaject, um, which is a yeah, intraprop, which is intercavernosal alprostadol that you inject directly into the cavernosum. Melissa, what was the non-injecting erection device um, and where can they get, where can patients get these from? Sure. I think the best option is a vacurect. So I've um, tried lots of pumps with rings and well, actually I haven't because I'm not a penis owner, but my poor husband's probably tried every pump that's ever been invented, I think, with rings just to see what works. Um, but the vacurect is the only one that I've found that actually works well. You actually put the ring on first and then the ring stays on and you remove the pump. And it's still not perfect, but you get about an 80% erection and you can keep it for half an hour with one of those. Um, they're invented by a, a South African man who um, actually had prostate cancer. And I think because of that, they're better than ones that have been invented by just sex shop owners or doctors because they've actually had the need. So he's really thought about it. I think it's a brilliant one. Um, you can get them on our website at Restorative Sexual Health. And you can also get them, Victoria Cullen, who is a, um, sexologist also sells them on her website but 
yeah, they're really great. And if you go to our YouTube channel, I've got a video on how they use it. And um, also Victoria does as well. And just sort of say the name again, Vacu-Erect. Yeah, Vacu-Erect. So V-A-C-U and then R-E-C-T. Yeah, that's great. I wonder if they'll ever come out with, uh, I'm sure you've all heard of needleless uh, injections uh, where you can actually get certain uh, vaccines and things like that without a needle. It'll be interesting if they do the same thing in the penis. Wouldn't well, they have good? actually, um, in America, they have approved by the FDA these little pillules that go up your urethra and then they're absorbed through there. And they're not approved by the TGA in Australia because they cause a lot of burning in the urethra. And there is one compounding pharmacist in Australia that makes them. But um, I've, just this week, if I had a patient ask if I could order them for them. But I've spoken to a couple of urologists this week about it. And the alprostadol that is in them can cause strictures in the urethra. So I'm not going to prescribe it because that's the reason the TGA don't want to. So, And honestly, no one ever believes that injections don't work until they do the first. They, they don't hurt until they do the first one. And if you do it with an auto injector, it is a lot easier. And there's also a video using one of those on the Restorative Sexual Health Clinic YouTube video, um, channel. That's great. Thanks, Thanks for that advice. Um, do we have any further questions? Um, Gary, I think you had a Thank question sure. you were going to ask someone. Um, first of all, to Kendall, um, many thanks for your presentation. And then I want to ask a general question of everybody, really. Um, Given the demographic of men that get prostate cancer, and we're talking in a more mature age, um, the two things that we're talking about here, um, food and exercise, um, because generally um, once you're diagnosed with cancer, and I look at my own journey, you then look to how, how hard is it going to be to sort of modify um, my lifestyle to, uh, to be watching what I eat, and to get motivated from a perspective to get healthy, either before treatment or after. I'd be interested in your view, Kendall, as I was mentioning at the beginning of the webinar, um, I did Google search to try and find out what was the best kind of foods that I should eat when I was diagnosed with prostate cancer. And I thought, okay, I'm gonna make, I mean, I have an hourglass figure as it is at the moment, but um, <laughs> uh, I mean, the interesting thing is, is that I did wanna try and make my outcomes better. Um, exercise, Rob, I was doing really well with. I would, I'd always been reasonably fit, so I was never really obese. But it was more, it, it, I'd be interested in both your views on how, when you are diagnosed, when you're first diagnosed, what should, what should you really look at and how do you go about that? Um, I'd be interested in your views on that. For me, um... I'm always about long-term adherence because if someone told me you're not allowed to have a glass of wine or chocolate ever again, it's the only thing I'm ever going to think about and I'm going to hate you. And so for me, it's just going back to basics again and understanding what your food habits are, what you like, what you don't like, and how I can modify what you really like because I know that people can eat lots of carbohydrates and small amounts of fat and protein, and they'll still lose weight. Um, it's just finding that balance for you. So to put it in simple terms, I think the Australian Dietary Guidelines and the American Dietary Guidelines are still a really good tool that we should still be reaching out. Two fruit a day, five veggies a day, and enough protein and enough carbohydrates. It is as simple as that, 
but it's very nuanced to you. Um, and so, you know, I'll meet someone that loves doing a ketogenic diet and that's great. I'll support them on that. Um, but then I'll always put the question on, are you going to maintain this for the rest of your life? Are you going to enjoy this for the rest of your life? So I'm more about education on understanding serve sizes again and how we eat a variety of foods because we know, especially with the Mediterranean diet, that's a variety of foods all the time. You know, you're eating your lentils and your nuts and your carbohydrates and your protein. That's important for me that yeah. you go back to basics again because there's no diet that fits for all. Um, we're all very individual and, yeah, long-term adherence is probably the key for that. Thanks. Yeah. Yeah. Uh, Rob, we'll give you one minute. <laughs> one minute. Look, uh, I, I can't emphasize how important the combination of diet and exercise is uh, for maintaining health. I'm, I'm not a dietitian, so um, take this with a grain of salt. I think from the research that I've read in prostate cancer, then trying to bring down um, systemic inflammation in the body is absolutely critical. And uh, that, that means you know, basically eating as healthy as you can. Have your, have your chocolate and your red wine, but you have to get your systemic inflammation down. And, and, and that's if it comes in a box or a can, don't eat it. And it, you know, as many colours, things that we put to our patients is the more colours on your plate, the better. Um, fresh fruit and vegetables, try and keep the plant-based as much as you can. Um, try and um, limit it. But again, it has to, you know, as Kendall says, unless you can do it long-term for the rest of your life, you know, it's not going to work. Um, and the same with the exercise. I, I don't want to put everyone off. Um, if you, any exercise is better than none. The worst thing that a person can do that has cancer is be sedentary. All that does is drive an internal environment, which is pro-cancer. And so any exercise, walking the dog, whatever, is better than none. But we can actually do far better than that. It's not optimal, and we can do better. Um, oh, Rob, there's a last-minute question that came in here. Can riding a bicycle, I suppose, sitting on the premium uh, where there's prostate cancer, can it worsen or make the cancer worsen or spread? I haven't heard anything like that. Have you? Yeah, it's, it's a lot of controversy around that. Um, and, you know, it, first off, it, riding a cycle does not cause prostate cancer, okay? It does, there's no evidence in people who have been, you know, doing, you know, professional cyclists, for example, there's no higher rate of prostate cancer. Obviously, it can be uncomfortable if you've had a, a, a surgery um, and, uh, it's, uh, there, you know, it's going to be even long-term. You may have long-term problems being on a cycle. And we just recommend to, you know, look around for a better seat. If, if, again, don't if you love cycling, all right, don't stop cycling because if you then do nothing, your outcome is going to be far worse. Um, so we, we do encourage them to keep cycling, but can you find a, a, cycle, a bike seat that is more comfortable for you? Um, and, you know, but there will be some, we have had some patients that still find it very, very uncomfortable and we just move them into a different exercise which doesn't involve sitting on a seat. Rob, thank you so much. I wanted to thank all our speakers, honestly, you know, these talks and a lot of our resources are always East Coast centric. So it's so nice that we have a full team of speakers here from the West Coast doing amazing things in the field of prostate cancer. We really are privileged to hear from you uh, today and we thank you for your time. Uh, giving your time on a Saturday to educate the community, uh, keep us safe um, and looking after us. We appreciate you and thank you. I'm going to tell you about a boy who lives inside me. He's been there all of my life. Hi, I'm Melissa and I hope you enjoyed the podcast this week. Just a reminder, if you've been diagnosed with prostate cancer, I've built a penile rehabilitation program just for you. 
It's an online program packed with information, exercises and advice along with proven strategies that will get your penis back in working order as quickly as possible in about 15 minutes a day. If you like the sound of that, then please head over to penilerehabilitationprogram.com and you can start straight away or there's a link from the RS Health website. We would also love you to review and subscribe and share this podcast so we can help more men. Links to Instagram and Facebook are in the show notes. We look forward to seeing you there. So spread the word that help is available. All the best for now. Bye. I've got a boy of my own now. It fills me with pride. To see him growing so fast into a man. His victories become mine.